All right, all right, all right. It is good to be back in your ear. I'm happy to be here. A couple things before we begin, because this week's podcast is filled with fire and maybe some controversy and all that kind of stuff that's good for the system, right? When you get triggered, get curious, because you got something to learn. At least that's been true for all of my life. And I wanted to first say thank you. Your feedback has been noted. I love it when you guys tell me how I can be better. That is how I continue to become a better human is people saying what I don't do so well. I want to be good at this podcasting thing. I want to be good at this interviewing thing. And you guys spoke and I listened. I've had a couple people give me the feedback that I've been possibly speaking over or interrupting guests. So I want to acknowledge that that is definitely probably been true. I don't listen back to all the podcasts. That's definitely been true if that's been your experience. So first off, I'm sorry, because that definitely impacts your listening experience. Secondly, uh, I was doing them by audio, so I couldn't see the natural video, you know, conversational cues of when one person's going to go and when's the other and all those things. So I moved to video as the interviewing format or in person. Secondly, I was using a program that would sometimes have a delay. So when I spoke in a gap in the conversation, it would cut over them because they wouldn't hear it right away. And so they wouldn't stop to allow me to speak and so on. So I wanted to say sorry, and I've changed the way I'm doing it to improve this experience for you guys. So thank you for your feedback. I'm so grateful. Speaking of feedback, if you could go to wherever you listen to this and leave me a five-star review and a written review, that really helps push this into more people's ears and grow this podcast. As I said before, I'm an ad-free podcast, and I do this out of my own time, my own money, and that's because I want to be able to help spread these really wonderful humans messages. Now, before I get into this podcast, which is filled with epicness, I want to first say that it needs to be met with compassion and tenderness and non-judgment. When I speak about subjects that are slightly triggering like this one, which is uh, the producer Brendan Murata of the new documentary that's on Netflix, which is called American Circumcision. So this subject is obviously A little bit, it involves politics, it involves religion, it involves how we identify and our own bodies and all those things and all these different opinions. But there's so much misinformation about the subject. And I wrote an article called We Failed Men, Here's How, years ago. Now, I want you to say if you're someone who has a son who has been circumcised, there's no judgment here. It's literally we're always doing the best we can with the information that we had. So I invite you to listen to this so that you can learn a little more about the subject because we were all miseducated on this. And secondly, if you're a man who's been circumcised and you're listening to this, listen to it with love and compassion for yourself and the choices that have been made, and also to really acknowledge and learn about how this might have impacted your life, because it's so powerful. The documentary itself is incredibly powerful. And this podcast is filled with, he shares some crazy research, the history of circumcision, How it's sort of, you know, he uses a really beautiful line that I don't want to give away. But man, I I don't, you know what, I'm just going to stop talking. As I said before, you know, I have for sure spoken over people. So that's because if there was a talking Olympics, I would probably win gold, silver and bronze. So without further ado, here is Brendan Murata. And I can't wait for you to hear this one. Man, this week I am so excited to have Brendan Murata on. For those of you that do not know this magical man, he has just had his documentary, American Circumcision, released on Netflix. So welcome, Brendan. I'm so happy you're here. Yeah, thanks for having me on. 
Yeah, I got to tell you, uh, the subject of circumcision uh, is one that's very like triggering for me because I feel like there's a, I'm uncircumcised, although that might be an overshare for the people listening. I don't care. It's uh, for me, it's really. The whole issue is an overshare. So we're going to go into that territory. <laughs> Yeah, at least the people who are used to me are used to me being my, you know, the subjects I cover feel, can feel uh, triggering, which is good. That means that we're talking about shit that matters. And that's really important to me. So yes, because of that, I have a lot of compassion and want to fight for men who do not have that, um, who do not have their foreskin. And this subject is also very divisive because it involves so many you know, we bring religion into it. We bring uh, also choices as a parent. Yeah. So, like, what drove you to create? And if anyone has not watched this documentary, even if you're afraid to or don't want to because your subconscious is saying that's not an important subject, you must. It is so essential to educate ourselves. So, yeah, like, how did you get to it? I mean, I think like a lot of people, I had that reaction you just mentioned of, you know, this subject is kind of weird or uncomfortable. And for me, it was like, you know, there's nothing I can do about that now. So out of sight, out of mind, I just won't think about it. But I was going through a period in my life where I was exploring a lot of how early life events had affected me later on. And this was something that would come up in the reading that I was doing and the learning that I was doing. And if you think about it, you know, in the mainstream, circumcision is sometimes framed as a fringe issue, as something that's a one-time decision that the parent makes, and then you never have to think about again. Mm. And in reality, it's something that is like throwing a stone in a pond. It ripples out throughout a man's life. It affects his body and his sexuality, his relationships, his self-image, his psychology. It affects religious institutions and medical institutions and even political and legal questions. So from that perspective, I mean, if I told you there was another issue that affected every man in America and every partner of a man and every parent and child in the most personal way possible, and no one had ever done a major documentary on it or had brought this conversation to the, the level that this film does, then you'd think, well, we obviously need to talk about that. That sounds really important. But because it makes people a little uncomfortable and because it hits every taboo, you know, sex, politics, religion, yeah. all in the most personal way possible, all in the, you know, your body, uh, it's really uncomfortable for people to talk about. But I think if you're willing to talk about it, then whatever fear or things you think might come up are going to be less scary because they're no longer an unknown. They're no longer a shadow. They're something you've brought to light. So part of the goal of the work that I'm doing now in the film is to bring that to light, to take this discussion, which could be seen as scary or fringe, and make it actually very easy for people. Yeah, and I think in that context, too, like so much comes up for someone listening, like a mother, a father, a boy who's had that. Like if you know men, you are in some way impacted by this. Yeah. You know, and I think that's important as people listen to this and the part of us that wants to defend because maybe there's no judgment on a choice you made when you only knew what you knew at the time. But I think like the valuable thing about your documentary that is not spoken about in so many ways, I've just seen how we've hidden what was originally sort of a tribal religious ritual in medicine. 
you know, that we've hidden it in. This is a medically necessary, but you know how they talk about the evolution of the purpose of, uh, in the documentary, you talk about that the evolution of the purpose of circumcision sort of follows along what fits at the time. Right. The, I've heard it said circumcision is a disease, is a circumcision is a disease, excuse me, a, a, a cure in search of a disease. Um, meaning, you know, we keep doing it and the re- people keep trying to find a reason that they're doing it. So when it began as a medical practice in America, it was considered a cure for masturbation. It was during the Victorian era. Uh-huh. They thought that basically sexuality was bad and that reducing sexuality would somehow make someone healthier. So they thought if they removed the most sensitive part of the man's anatomy, they could stop this horrible, unclean social ill. Um, of course that didn't work, but <laughs> yeah, right. over time people from being human. Yeah. Over time, the reasons have changed. And so you look at, for example, the 1960s, when the sexual revolution happened, all of a sudden the idea that reduced sexuality wasn't good marketing because American culture changed to see sexuality as a good thing. So then it became, well, it'll prevent STDs. And then later it became, well, it will prevent HIV and if you look at when circumcision began, those things weren't even the primary concern. And over time, it sort of shifted because, well, we're still doing it. So I guess we need to find a reason. That's sort of this like psychological compulsion to keep the practice going. And if you look at the values most people have now, they're not congruent to the practice. So most people have this value of personal autonomy, the idea that you have the right to make your own choices about your body and about your sexuality. And cutting off a part of someone else's body and their sexuality doesn't really fit with those modern values of personal autonomy and sexual freedom. Man, and and add on to that, you know, the Hippocratic oath of thou shall do no harm. You know, it's it goes against the very oath to know the research that we know now. And even in the research you were talking about. Um, HIV and the prevention of HIV. I mean, I had read those studies, but you guys went through it so eloquently of the flaws of those studies. And if you wouldn't mind sharing, like, I know it's it's thought that, and I know the Bill and uh, the Bill Gates Foundation sort of supported um, circumcision to prevent HIV, like they were doing this beautiful um, service to all of us. Right. So it's one of those things that gets read as a headline. And, yes. you know, circumcision prevents HIV. And people read that and they go, well, I'm circumcised. I don't want HIV. So that's good. Moving on with my life. I'm not going to think about anything else about it. Most people are not getting into the data of these studies or really thoroughly investigating them. And when you look at the data of those studies, it's really flawed. And, And even the assumption is flawed. So when it comes to women's bodies, if you were to hear a study saying that female circumcision reduced HIV, you would say, okay, but women have the right to make their own choices about their bodies. So that doesn't fit with the paradigm that we have on any other part of the body. If it was, you know, you could cut off your ear and you'd have less HIV, you'd say, yeah, but I like having my ears. So I'm not going to do that. But with that part of the body, it's seen as normalized. But when you get into the study itself, they're highly flawed. So more people left the study than stayed in. The group that was circumcised received health counseling and was told to use condoms and used condoms at a higher rate. So if anything, the study shows that if you use condoms, you have a less chance of getting STDs, which we all kind of know, right? Yeah, that's a good um, one. And it's framed as like this surgical vaccine, but it doesn't work the way that 
anyone thinks about a vaccine working. Because if you, a vaccine, you know, you take it and then you don't get the disease. But if you are circumcised, you can still get STDs. You can still get HIV. America, where the majority of the population is circumcised, has some of the highest STD rates and, and HIV rates in the industrialized world. So it hasn't worked here. Right. But at the same time, oh, and if you got into the studies too, circumcised men transmitted HIV to women at a higher rate. So it may protect men, but then it also increases HIV transmission to women. So it like it doesn't really make sense. And the only explanation that a lot of critics have been able to come up with as to why they're still pushing this is that there's a lot of money in it. And they're they're setting up these circumcision clinics in places where there isn't clean running water. It's like, what's the higher priority here? What's going to stop disease transmission more, you know, clean running water or circumcision? Circumcision, by the way, that they perform and then aren't able to do follow-up on. So it's not like if there's a botch or a surgical error that they can come back to that area and there's going to be follow-up care that doesn't often doesn't happen. So, you know, there's a whole series of flaws like that. But then you go back to the original question of, well, is it even ethical? Is that how we should frame parts of the body? Even if it was to prevent HIV, there would still be the ethical question of, well, people need to give consent for a surgical procedure done on them. But, you know, that doesn't all fit in the headline. People just read it prevents this and they go, that's great. Moving on with my life. Yeah, I don't have to think about it. Yeah, Yeah, well, and that's the part is thinking about it causes too much dissonance. And I I thought what was fascinating about sort of the feedback, and I listened to you on Luke Story's podcast, about how women are actually more supportive of the discussion and the conversation, and men tend to be more defensive of it or or shut down, which to me makes logical sense. Yeah, I think it depends a lot on the individual psychology of the person and if they feel like they have a sunk cost in that decision. So if a parent has chosen to circumcise their child in some way, they feel like any discussion or criticism of the practice is a criticism of them personally as a parent. Yeah. And men who've been circumcised feel like any discussion of it sometimes feel like that's a criticism of their body and their sexuality. And so when we frame that discussion, you know, people will say, I am circumcised. The same way you'd say, like, I am white, or I am black, or I am male, or I am female. And it becomes a part of their identity. Mm-hmm. Even though it's not, it's something that happened to them. They wouldn't come out of the womb circumcised, right? Someone chose to do that to them. And so if you shift that language, if you stop seeing it as part of your identity and just something that happened to you, then I think people will find that their values might be different. It's not, I am circumcised. It's, I am someone who supports human rights or individual autonomy or sexual freedom or things like that, that fit with other, other values people have a lot more. Well, and interesting too, that when we are afraid to look at it because two values can't coexist, you know, that they're in conflict. And so it's hard for us to hold two things that are in conflict. And the other thing I think about a lot is the impact this has on us relationally, of course, because that's the subject that I mainly focus on, is like more men are avoidant, more men are able to disassociate. We're more prone as a gender to being psychopathic. We're more prone, I mean, to shoot up schools. We're more prone. Right. Right. Like, and I think about the correlation of the severing or the trauma of attachment in the first 
you know, what does it happen in the first eight to 10 days of life that they get circumcised, the boys? Yeah, for, for medical circumcision, it's often the first day of life. And for religious circumcision, it's the eighth day of life in the Jewish tradition. Wow. So we're like learning so much about early childhood trauma and how that affects later childhood um, yeah. ability to connect to other people. And I mean, the research on attachment shows that how you attach from, till the age of two is very related to how you attach an adult. But you come yeah. out of the womb and you're like, I love you, mom. I'm so safe. I'm out in this new place. And then you get this complete psychological trauma. Yeah. Can you speak more to that? And I know you mentioned there's a researcher who looks a lot at that. That is something we could spend the entire remainder of the podcast on because there is so much there. But the short version is that there are scientific studies that show that the pain can be remembered and having a la has a lasting effect. So everything we know about early life trauma and early life experiences indicates that things that happen to you early in life have a dramatic impact later on. And there are studies that have shown that there is a lasting change in behavior from circumcision. And the specific study involved measuring the response to vaccination later. And they found that children who are vaccinated, you know, they have the needle that goes in with the vaccine. One group of these children had a very dramatic reaction to the pain. And the researchers are trying to figure out why this is. And what they found was that children who'd been circumcised responded much more dramatically to the pain. They, they cried much louder. They felt the pain much greater. And what the researchers concluded was that this was due to post-traumatic stress disorder. So the children had a traumatic experience during circumcision. They felt a lot of pain during that. Then they felt a lot of pain during vaccination. And they responded not just to the pain of vaccination, but to the remembering of the pain of circumcision. Wow. And this happens at a pre-verbal unconscious yeah. level. So the thing about pre-verbal memories, and when we talk about memory, I think a lot of people get confused. They think, well, I don't remember my birth. I don't remember my circumcision. So that doesn't make sense. But pre-verbal memory isn't like narrative memory. It's not like if I asked you what you ate for breakfast yesterday and you would sort of time travel in your mind back to the previous morning and be able to tell a narrative about what happened. It's something that happens in the body on a unconscious level. And it causes a, a change in behavior is a form of memory. So this type of memory, this pre-verbal memory this, or non-verbal memory is something that animals have. So if you come home and you see your dog and your dog is happy to see you, your dog remembers you, but your dog couldn't tell you a story about you or who you are or what that means. He just remembers you and is happy to see you. And likewise, people who abuse their animals or hurt their dog, the dog flinches and is reactive around them. So the dog remembers that trauma and has a change in behavior based on that memory. Mm -hmm. And if someone was to beat their dog and say, well, it's fine, he won't remember it, you would think that person was a monster. But when we do the same thing to infants and children, people treat it as, well, it's fine, he won't remember it. In reality, it's similar in that that is a, going to cause a lasting change in behavior in the child. And the child may not remember it, but that is going to play out in their behavior as much as, as if you were to hurt a dog, it would probably be less social and friendly around people and less trusting of them. Hmm. Uh, one of the people who spoke in my film framed it this way. She said, when we circumcise newborn males, what we are teaching them on some unconscious level is that if you're bigger and stronger than someone else, you get to do what you want to their body. And that's a really dangerous lesson to teach men in their 
first relationship, the relationship to their mother on which all of their relationships are going to be patterned. And then, you know, like all the statistics, like you said, like there's higher levels of all sorts of antisocial or harmful behavior. Part of it is how we teach men. I think there's a cultural frame around men and masculinity that men are expected in their sort of traditional tribal role to sacrifice their safety and their well-being for the good of the tribe. So if you send a man into battle and he says, I don't know, I don't think I feel really safe on this battlefield. I think I'd rather <laughs> yeah. be at home right now. I don't know if I actually, this doesn't feel very good for me. You, there's all sorts of names you would throw at that man. Like he's <laughs> yeah. the wussy, he is a coward. Uh, and, and in a he's sense, shamed. right, it would be shamed. And in a sense, there is a tribal role that men who do that perform that is courageous and valid and important course, and good. Yeah. And they, they deserve to have some social recognition for being willing to play that role. And However, part of evolution for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It, there's an evolutionary psychology element to this. I don't think it's purely a social construct, although there are social constructs built on it, but the danger is when that is extended to other behaviors that might actually be helpful to the tribe. So a man who is speaking out on circumcision, for example, will sometimes get the same treatment because he is going against what the tribe wants and in some way saying that it's not okay for the tribe to cause him harm in return for what they want. But I would argue that someone doing that is practicing the same masculinity. They're sacrificing their emotional comfort and their emotional well-being for the good of the tribe, for the protection of their future children. And a sacrifice like circumcision doesn't benefit the tribe, even though it involves a man talking about harm they've experienced. Mm. So that is a shift that I think as a culture we need to have in terms of, you know, including in that definition of masculinity, the ways in which men are showing courage and bravery on a non-physical level, on which a is, level, yeah. Yeah, which is, of course, uh, what we say we desire, Mm -hmm. but, you know, it's like when you look at uh, there's a study on speed dating where you ask a woman what they want and then they say all these things they want and then they speed date and they choose not that. Right. So, of course. Like, evolutionary psychology is yeah. at conflict with what the cognitive desire is. But when you think about like the the um, going against the social norms, of course, and having that conversation. And I remember when I wrote my article, uh, it was called We've failed men, here's how, it caused a lot of controversy because people were like, well, yeah, but it's based on health reasons. And I had a lot of people, you know, like uh, I had a Jewish guy who said, well, we knew this when we first created it, it was for health reasons. So I think there's a lot of um, information that needs to be debunked about the history of circumcision. And so can you just give us a little info on where it comes from? And like, because there's so much conflicting information and you right. have really brilliant uh, experts come on who are historians about it. And I thought it was really fascinating to learn the real truth. Yeah. The, the challenge with information on this issue is that it's hard for people to sometimes accept men's feelings about it or even women's feelings about it because they see the underlying reasons for those feelings as invalid and, and feel like there are a lot of people who feel like, if they're not willing to question circumcision, then they also have to invalidate the feelings of people who are questioning. Yeah. 
And if you look at the research, I find it really interesting that your your Jewish friend said it was for health reasons. That's a that's a reason that was invented in the late 1800s. Yeah. Prior to that, and if you, if you look at the early biblical and Torah texts, it was considered a blood sacrifice, and it was seen as giving up a part of the body, not even your body, but the body of your male progeny. Uh, you know, the same way you would sacrifice animals in the temple. Yeah. So the idea that it was for the benefit of the person receiving the circumcision is relatively new. Prior to that, it was seen as that you are intentionally sacrificing part of their body for a religious or tribal context. God, couldn't they pick a different part? You know, like that's... Uh, that's Yeah, there's a lot written about why this part of the body. Um, and, And if you look at it, it's circumcision removes the maximum amount of pleasure while still allowing for procreation. That's basically the design of it, is removing the maximum amount of nerve endings and tissue that still allow the person to reproduce. Yeah, because people don't even know that the foreskin actually has... Um, the most nerve endings of any part of the male body. Yeah, so is it yeah. similar to the clitoris or the clitoral hood? Um, it's probably most analogous to the clitoral hood, although there's more nerve endings in the foreskin than the head of the penis. So there's oh, a yeah. difference in the male and female anatomy in that on women, the clitoris tends to be the most nerve-laden, although most of the clitoris is underneath the body. It's subcutaneous. It, it's not just the part that you can see. Uh, so on men, the foreskin tends to have the most nerve endings, in particular the ridged band of the foreskin, the ring around the end of it, that acts as you will, uh, is the opening of the foreskin. Mm. Uh, and if you... It makes sense because most of the openings of the body have a lot of nerve endings because yeah. you want to know if something's going into your body. That's sort of yeah, a that makes natural sense. evolution. Uh, and so that is the most nerve-laden part of the male body. And there are different sensations that it produces that are different than, say, other parts of the body. The same way that women can receive a slightly different sensation from their G-spot and their clitoris. There's different sensations that can happen on the male body. But most of American culture isn't aware of that because we don't have those parts. Man, I had no clue when that guy on your film was talking about like or ejaculating from like he came five times, two minutes apart from different parts of his penis. I was like, my mind was just like, you know, you think of all the different moves you could pull after that, learning all that stuff. Yeah. And I've heard people I've had some people respond that would say, well, not all men can do that. But like most women are intact and not all women are able to easily orgasm. So it's a case there, too, of how aware you are of your body and how much uh, how how in touch you are with your own sensations and pleasure. Totally. Discovering yourself. Was that encouraged in your culture, your religion? I mean, yeah. You know, what time, when did you grow up? You know, right. there's all, all the cultural messages. So when they chose to um, circumcise as a, as a form of uh, sacrifice for progeny, um, then what was sort of the next logical step in the evolution of circumcision? So oh, the procedure changed. Yeah, the procedure changed over time. Uh, it changed during the Hellenistic period when, Jewish men wanted to participate in Roman athletic games. So it used to be, you know, if, if this is the, the foreskin, they would remove just the very tip above the head of the penis. And what Jewish men would do when they wanted to participate in Roman athletic games, where it would be considered lewd to have the head of the penis exposed, 
is they would pull the remaining foreskin they had over the, the glands of their penis so that it looked like they were intact. Mm. And Jewish leaders and rabbis didn't like this because part of the mark of circumcision was to differentiate Jewish men from Roman culture. So the fact they were trying to pass as Romans didn't sit well with them. And they changed the procedure to remove not just the very tip of the foreskin, but the entire foreskin. So it actually changed. And the version of circumcision that is practiced now is that version of circumcision, which was not the version that was practiced in the time of Moses and in the early Torah. So it became more drastic over time. Fascinating, because no one knows this, right? And it's like, this information isn't shared. Like, this is so, everybody, get to know the penis better. This is important. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where... Uh, you know, I always find it weird to, on a certain level when people don't want to know about it, because if this happened instead of when you were born, if, if it instead happened yesterday and you just woke up one day and part of your, your penis was missing, that would be figuring out why that happened would be your number one goal for the however much time it took. Yeah. Like what did I lose? What did yeah. you know, all the different impacts? And if you talk to a friend and and they were to say, oh, uh, it's not a big deal. It happened to everyone we know. Say, we happened to everyone we know. We got to really figure it out now. <laughs> They're like, well, don't worry. It only happened when we were too small and defenseless to, to make any choice uh, on it. Like, what are you, what, are you telling me it was a rape? It wasn't with our consent. Like, you would be... It would figuring out why this happened would be the number one priority. But in because every happened, other aspect of yeah. life. In every but, other aspect of our body. Yeah, but because it's, you know, considered cult, that's the power of cultural programming. Yeah. And that's the momentum of culture. Like yeah. everything you're talking about is going against social constructs. When you go against social constructs, especially ones that are rooted in the identity of religion, you're stirring some serious shit, which yeah. I think that's really important because when people get pissed off, that means their identity is starting to be questioned, which means mm-hmm. there's a possibility of a really powerful shift. Should they be open to educating themselves? I think you got to put your own triggers behind because that's the connection of all relationship. It's like, is my trigger as important as maintaining connection with my partner? Hmm. No, I have to choose to observe my trigger and choose a connective behavior, which is the exact same thing. It's being told that you're wrong or being told that you didn't do something right gives you an opportunity for a new behavior. Yeah. It's blowing my mind that culture has not shifted and that if this was about women, we'd be fucking knocking walls down and we'd be blowing up hospitals. We'd be, you know, we'd be losing our mind, which is rightfully so. I totally agree with that perspective. But why is it okay when it's men? So... uh, Sorry. I hope I have to, to just preface one thing. I hope it doesn't reach to the point where people are engaging in that kind of behavior. Yeah, yeah, for, I don't for social change. Want that to have it, but you know, just to I mean. be clear, yeah, yeah. Um, we're not promoting that as a way of social change. But I, I understand the feelings that people have that that would make them feel like that is something that they want, and I think that part of the challenge here is that previously in culture. We have not had the tools to talk about this issue and the necessary pre-framing or persuasion to talk about it. So if you look at the time when circumcision began, there was not a very open discussion of sexuality. Children were seen as the property of their parents. It was okay to beat children. And there wasn't the ability to widely disseminate information and have public discussions like this. Now 
there have been multiple movements asserting the idea that you have the right to your own body, that you have the right to make your own decisions about your sexuality. And there has been a, some of a movement around how we treat children and the idea that it's not okay to hurt children. Mm-hmm. So those movements have created a certain persuasion for actually talking about this issue where now it's okay to talk about sexuality. There's also been movements. It's okay to question religion and it's okay to have a discussion about how we treat children. We're not totally there on that one yet, but it's starting to happen. And so that has happened. And on top of that, there's the ability to widely disseminate information without cultural gatekeepers. So Prior to this, if you and I wanted to have this discussion, we would have to get airtime on a radio station or send out a book or newsletter and hope people found out about it some way. Now we can have these discussions person to person without cultural gatekeepers getting in the way. And there is the cultural acceptance to have that discussion. So I think that's the biggest thing. And it's still challenging a lot of taboos, and there are still major institutions that don't want that discussion to happen and feel threatened by it in some way. But the ability for them to shut that discussion down is much less. Mm. And some of those institutions, are you referring to like religious institutions, political? The two, the two biggest ones are uh, religious institutions and especially Uh, powerful Jewish organizations. And then the other is the medical industry. So there are groups that are making money off of the procedure or have a sunk cost in promoting it. That, you know, on one level, I get it. And on another level, uh, I think that they're making a colossal mistake, even from a self-interested position by continuing to promote it. It's going to, sh- you know, it's going to come crashing down on them. I was reading a Canadian article from the Canadian Pediatric Society. And now most of the people who listen to this podcast are American. Um, but, you know, being Canadian, I wanted to know what was going on over here in a deeper level. And I was fascinated to read that. Um, I forget who the person was, but they were a representative of the Canadian Pediatric Society. And they talked that uh, circumcision originated from an idea of prevention of infection in uh, you know old times back in the Roman era, and that when it was hot and sweaty and you'd get infections, and that was the origin. And I was like, that's not even accurate. And then yeah. the second part is they quoted the HIV studies, which I had already known were completely flawed. And I'm like, as a scientist, you should know that shit, and you should not be quoting studies that are that you're not critically thinking about, which is really what it's meant to be as a researcher, as a physician, as a, but when it goes against your identity and what you're doing, you just subconsciously exclude information that challenges what you actually believe. I noticed that a lot of people in the medical field and researchers have a strong authority bias. So when I go into the information that I've talked about in the HIV studies, they'll say, well, what do you mean? WHO supports those studies. Are you saying WHO is wrong? And it's like, that's not how science works. Science is not that an authority says that. And the World Health Organization is an extremely political organization. I have had friends who have been involved in some of the behind the scenes process of decisions they make. And there are people who are donors and have political influence who have influence over those decisions. So to say, well, this big organization with lots of political interests and money flowing through them says it's a good idea is not really how, it's not a convincing scientific argument. That's like saying that mom or dad are right just because they're mom or dad. 
you know, like it's in some sense, it's like when there's a, you know, a hundred million dollars of donation um, lingering on the decision to make that pro or against, it really does. You're right. There's so many influences that we are not privy to. There are. And I think that one of the challenges, especially for medical organizations, is that they feel, and and this is just my perception, but they feel that if they change their mind on this issue, then they may become legally liable for having done the procedure for so long. And that every man who's had it done has a potential lawsuit. And that's a lot of money that would, that would bring down a lot of organizations. And so they're, I think that right now they're trying to figure out how they can either just make the issue go away, which it won't, or they can somehow pull themselves out of the debate so that they don't receive the, the responsibility for the decisions they've made. You look at the framing now of major you know, pro-circumcision groups, they used to release policy statements like the AP. They would release a policy statement saying that circumcision was good and you're basically a moron if you don't do it. And now their policy statement or their most recent policy statement was, well, there's some benefits and there's some risks, but we leave it up to the parents. And they just say, well, this is what the parents want. Never mind that we promoted this to parents for a hundred years and didn't even ask for consent in the, you know, up until the late eighties for the procedure, but it's now we're going to shift the blame to the parents because that is a legally safer, safer strategy for us. Mm. So as time goes on, they reduce their legal risk due to consent occurring. So anyone pre-consent really has a legal case. Although how does a parent consent for a child, you know, like in something so, yeah, I know that I was I was reading it's like we're not I was reading one policy statement of a group that was against um, circumcision saying we're not against the actual act if it's medically required, mm. but it needs to be consensual. And I was like, that's a great way of framing it that you, yeah. know, you had on your movie. I really liked that you had on quite a few Jewish physicians who spoke about like we don't actually need to do circumcision to do a ritual. Like we can Mm -hmm. do one that doesn't involve circumcision. I'm like, yeah, that's actually a great idea. Yeah, there are uh, the the position of the people who are involved in the movement against circumcision, which is known as intactivism, intact plus activist. Yeah. uh, Is that essentially people have the right to make their own decisions about their body. So if you're an adult and you want to get any surgical procedure, that's fine. You're an adult you can do what you want. It's, it's putting it on a child without their consent that I think a lot of people have an issue with. And on a consent question, that's sort of the frame the debate is moving to now. By the way, on both male and female genital cutting. So there are people who are circumcised women that I interview who say the same thing, that they should have been given a choice. And there are also people who are circumcised women who say, I want to keep practicing this in my culture, but I'm willing to compromise and move it to an age of consent issue. And the framing on those two is very different. There's framing on male circumcision that's basically good and you're somehow weak if you don't like it. And the framing on female circumcision is that it's basically evil and you're a terrible person if you practice it. Whereas there is a growing movement that just simply says people have rights to make their own decisions about their body and we should make the age of consent universal for all procedures. So if you're a man or you're a woman, you do what you want when you're an adult. But if you're a child, you have the right to your own body and you have the right to have that body protected. Mm, that's interesting that in the framework of, of 
uh, female genital mutilation versus male genital mutilation that like I have a friend I remember when I wrote that article who's you know by all uh, ways of identifying a feminist and she was quite offended that I made them related like in some way calling circumcision that was taking away from the the uh, importance of female and I was like right. well, they're both important like yeah there, I've noticed that perception from some feminist organizations that they see Male circumcision is so trivial that to compare the truth is trivializing female circumcision. That was her response. Not realizing that that frame is going to cause female circumcision to become legalized because there is no legal argument that one gender's body is to be protected and another's isn't. And if, I think that that frame and that frame that even major anti-FGM organizations are pushing is going to cause female circumcision to be legalized. In the United States, it already has. There was a court case recently where it was the first federal court case prosecuting someone under the federal law against female genital cutting, which we talk about in our film. And the defense argued that the case should be thrown out, and it was. And in the judge, in his opinion, he, he sort of got them out on a technicality, saying the federal government doesn't have the right to regulate this under the Interstate Commerce Clause. But he also said there's an equal protection clause. And a law protecting one gender that doesn't protect universally is probably unconstitutional. And I think that in the coming years, the, you know, if you look at the people who advocate female genital cutting, they're starting to borrow arguments from the pro-male circumcision movement. They're saying it's healthier. It's our religion. We have the right to do this. And huh. the, the groups against FGM are off on a lot of their science and arguments that they make they're making arguments that are very political that this is somehow drastically different than other forms of genital cutting when it isn't and i think that they're going to lose over time the legal argument and cause female circumcision to become legal because they're not going to apply a universal standard to genital cutting and we're already seeing it happen that's fascinating because, you know, objectively, I mean, I guess, you know, I have obviously biases as a male, but objectively, I would love both to have the same laws. Like, to me, that's a no brainer yeah. that both genders win being able to choose their choices for their body, being able to choose like there is no loss there. No one gets fucked over in that experience. Right. Yeah, it, 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 it doesn't diminish women's suffering to acknowledge that men experience pain, too. And I think that people who feel threatened in that way in some way see suffering as a zero-sum game. Like if I acknowledge your pain, that you won't acknowledge my pain. And in reality, when you can acknowledge your own pain or have your own pain acknowledged, it becomes easier to acknowledge what others are feeling. Yeah, it's sort of counterintuitive because you see that with a lot of movements. Like if your movement <laughs> much steam, mine will lose steam. Or right. You know, where really there's enough for everybody, you know, everybody has the right to be rehumanized, you know, and I, I think that's an important thing to see, like, we should always fight for the humanization of anybody. Yeah, I think that that zero sum game comes into play a lot around the funding of movements. So some of those organizations that are receiving funding to combat female genital cutting, their funding is, they, they feel like their funding is a zero sum game. And if there's lots of money flowing to them. And then they acknowledge male circumcision that some of that money is not going to go to them anymore. But that is an argument based on 
power, not principles. It's one of where we want to maintain political power and influence. And it's also based in the fact that some of their donors are wealthy Westerners who have practiced circumcision or have a religious or cultural desire for certain male circumcision. And so there's a fear of offending that donor base of people who have that cultural bias or are Jewish or are from American society where they practice it. And I think that's the other reason that a lot of these groups are really afraid to take it on is that there is a financial influence from Mm. people who are pro-circumcision. That's interesting to think that there's a, um, I mean, if you are supportive of one, you should by logic be supportive of both, but I get it. There's so, again, the dissonance of information that it's, it's the cultural aspect. It's the, the money and the game of power and it's all of those things. That's the challenge of this issue is if it was just one thing, it would be very simple. Yeah. Just didn't know the information. You'd tell them and it would be solved and there would be change. If it was just the religious aspect, well, we would work on that. The people have already let go of a lot of other religious practices that were found to be harmful. If it was just the sexuality aspect, then we would do that. But it's all of them together. And it's this uh, sort of interlocking series of problems. Yeah, trying to change a bunch of things. At, you have to change so many structures to change one thing. Yeah. You know, in essence, how is on it? The- or, sorry, go on. Well, it's been received really well. And I, I actually wrote a, a blog post on this recently. I'll be sure to link it then for everyone. Everything we discuss, I'll link so no one has to go. Through. So the reception has been really positive. We've played at film festivals and won awards. We uh, did a 13-city tour across the country and screened on some college campuses. And now it's out everywhere films are sold. And it's on Netflix. And it's gotten a huge reception on social media there. And we've gotten some good press. So it's been really good. But one of the things that I wrote about that I found really interesting, uh, I've had a lot of people ask me if there's been backlash from pro-circumcision groups or people who don't like it. And there hasn't. Hmm. And that's what I find really interesting. Because there are other films and filmmakers I know who've done films on controversial issues in some way less controversial issues, who've received massive backlash for it. They've had, you know, hit pieces written about them, and they've had people try to deplatform them and shut them down. And I haven't experienced that yet. And that actually really surprised me because I was expecting that to happen. Because one of the things that we cover in the film was there was this attempt to ban circumcision in the city of San Francisco. So there was... Mm -hmm. Uh, a law that would be passed that would age restricted to 18. You couldn't do it to anyone under the age of 18. And in response to the attempt to pass that law, there was a massive push by groups like the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, and the Jewish Community Relations Council, and allies that they have in the media to frame anyone even talking about this issue, not even talking about religious circumcision, but circumcision in general, as weird or gross or an anti-Semite. Wow. And so I will work, you know, that I was, that we covered that in the film and I was filming yeah. and I was prepared to, to deal with that heat. I had a moment where I sort of sat down and I thought, and I said, do I want to do this? You know, is there, is there going to be an attempt to basically prevent me from ever making a film again or demonize my work? And the conclusion I came to basically was that if I stopped doing this work or I stopped making this film, that I would be abandoning the part of me that felt something around this issue, that I would in some way be letting down my own inner child for, for forces in the culture. 
And I decided that being true to that was more important than what anyone else said about me. So I went into it ready for something like that to happen. And there's been virtually nothing. And it's actually really surprising to me. (laughs) And you're like waiting for it to drop, you know? Yeah, there's that like feeling for it. But but I'd like to think that it is, and I was having a conversation with some friends about this the other night. One, knowing that that was a possibility, I built things into the film to address those objections. So people who feel like that uh, men who talk about this are weak in some way, or people who feel like that this is even offensive to talk about. And I designed the film in such a way as to make sure both sides were heard and that the objections that people had would be addressed. So I'd like to think that it hasn't come because the film is really good. But the other possibility is that they don't really have an argument at this point. And and I think a lot of the groups that are in favor of circumcision feel like on some level that if they just, you know, cover their ears and cover their eyes and go away and, and they don't really have a clear rebuttal to the film of any kind. So we haven't had any kind of backlash like that, which is in some way, really interesting. Uh, In the blog post I wrote, I wrote about a Sherlock Holmes story where he solves a case by determining that the dog didn't bark. It wasn't what happened. It was what didn't happen. So he concludes that the, the, the dog that was on guard must have known the robber because it didn't bark when the robber came. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like there's something similar here where the fact that that didn't happen is actually a clue and something very telling about this issue. Because on other issues, you know, recently there have been a number of articles about how people who are in the the anti-vaccination movement, which I see as a very different issue, but people involved in that movement are getting deplatformed and they're having uh, social media shut down. And on our film and our issue, you know, there was a, a medical news organization that asked the AAP for comment and they gave this sort of elusive quote, the AP, by the way, is the American Academy of Pediatrics. They gave this sort of elusive quote saying, well, we don't have a spokesperson that we know of who's seen the film. And it's like, um, there's a lot of language in there. Like, it's not that the leadership hasn't seen it. Um, we just haven't. We don't know. know a guy who knows a guy. Who's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, gonna, so we're going to let this fall away. But at the same time, um, when I have been to events where the AAP leadership is, they recognize me on site and, and can just from my face see who I am. So like, I know you guys have seen the film. I know they've, they've done that. For an autograph. They're like, I've never heard of this movie, but Hey, I would, I would love to go up to the, their leadership and get them to autograph a copy of the film for me. I think that would be great. And I would sell it on eBay for lots (laughs) of money later. Well, I wonder if they would be open to, uh, like, have you seen any debates at a pediatric conference on this? Is that something that's even, or is it too religiously and politically charged for that to even? They don't want debate on it. So it used to be that uh, intactivist organizations were able to get a booth inside medical conferences, and they've stopped allowing that. They deny those groups. In fact, I uh, offered to do an ad at the latest American Academy of Pediatrics conference, they, you could pay $5,000 and get an info card or an insert in everyone's bag who went to the conference. Oh, that'd have been amazing. And so I signed up to do that and they told me my submission was denied. So Weird. I, I, lit- I literally can't pay them to, to talk about <laughs> the film. 
Yeah, the well, and and before we close out, the one part I really wanted to sort of come back to is based on your knowledge and your experience, what do you think the impact of this is on relationships, on a man's ability to, you know, be in relationship, to handle conflict, to handle because I think of that trauma template that you were talking about, right? That we know, you know, based on that research that you spoke about, that they are more hyper susceptible to a, a similar trauma that occurs, you know, not long after. But then now any form of like, because I thought about, okay, well, what does this mean about a connection? Because, you know, the relationship to their mother, the distrust, potentially, it's not always true, but often the distrust then, like, I don't trust my mom to take care of me because in the first day or first eight days of life. And it's like, does it show up as a distrust of women? Does it show up as, you know, um, more prone to uh, acts of aggression? more disassociation, you know? So it's going to be different with every person. Yeah. But the commonalities that I have seen include hypervigilance, disassociation, learned helplessness, a feeling of abandonment or triggers around abandonment, difficulties with intimacy. Like if I get really close to you, you're going to hurt me. Yeah. Trauma, like a... um yeah, a form of trauma that causes a, a avoidance. Yeah, and then there's a the challenge of a lot of this is that it is pre-verbal. So if yeah. you're getting at it in a therapy setting, you may need talk therapy. I found does not work for a lot of people on this as much as things which access the deep mind. So often somatic therapies, things yeah. that get you in the body, or trance-based therapies which bypass the conscious mind and go a little deeper. Um, but those are the ones that I have seen most often. And, and if there is negative behavior, it often comes from those underlying fears. Mm-hmm. So for example, the, the hypervigilance, like if I let my guard down around you and enter the level of a vulnerable state that I was in infancy, then you might hurt me. So I'm going to, keep my guard up around you. And and you can actually see it unconsciously whenever I talk to someone about this issue. I used to, I used to notice a lot of people whose shoulders would unconsciously raise or even they would unconsciously guard their genitals. Like their hands would cover that part of the body Mm. just at the word circumcision. And I'll tell you, I'm fine with it, but they're doing this like unconscious guarding. Yeah. The shoulders closed down the the guard. Yeah. Yeah, because I think of the, you know, for me, I was in the NICU for the first 10 days of my life because I was premature. Mm. And I did a, um, I went to the psychotherapy uh, workshop. And in it, we had to, it was psychotherapy means shamanism. It was a really cool sort of integration. And part of it was this meditation. And I, um, you know, it was like, go to the place where you, you know, you, your trauma first came or, and it was thinking of like, you could do past life regression or you would just go to a place that naturally came to you. And the woman who was running it, the psychotherapist shaman, she said, uh, don't go to the place you think, just let yourself go. Mm-hmm. And I went to this moment where I saw my mom being taken from me. And it was, I've never thought about NICU. I've never thought about premature. I never thought about being separated. It was never mm-hmm even on my radar, I was like, oh, breakup when I was 19. That's where the first real emotional trauma was. All of a sudden, I started crying. And for the next two months, I was like a freaking mess. I would be with my girlfriend just like, I remember standing in the backyard at her sister's place in Vegas. And I, I was like, I'm so emotional. I have so much grief. 
and I just would cry. Mm. And I talked to the psychotherapist about it after, and I was like, I can't label it. Like, I don't have words for where it comes from. It just, that was the trigger. And I, for about two months, I would just cry. Mm. She said to me, it's because it was before you had words. So you can't yeah. label it. And she just opened this freaking tap on me that all of a sudden it took, you know, I didn't fight it. I just let the grief come, but it was yeah. very scary. Cause I didn't know, like my girlfriend would be like, are you okay? Like what's up for you? And I think about that for a man who might just have a, a baseline characteristic of grief or sadness that mm. they don't know why they're just sad. Yeah. And so I, that that's a very common way of putting it. If you have a feeling that's been there or feels like it's always been there and you don't know why, but it's just there. Early life stuff is often a source of that. Yeah. And so like for people who are listening or, you know, everyone knows a guy who's been circumcised, I'm sure. Um, what do you got? Cause in the film you cover it, but of course I want people to understand that now, like what are some of the things that men can do or women who are, you know, in relationship with men or no men who are looking for support in this, what are some solutions that people can find? So I'm actually writing something now on the healing process for men. And I think that the first and most important thing is to just be present with whatever feelings come up, Mm -hmm. acknowledge them, be present with them. Don't invalidate them or, or in some way, in any way, shame someone or yourself for having them. And it, that's true also if you're supporting someone. So very often when a man expresses feelings about this issue, even to a therapist, they'll invalidate their feelings. So well, what do you mean? Circumcision's normal. Mm. And it's like, okay, well, now I don't feel safe <laughs> sharing that with you. So I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm just putting the walls up. Um, so just be present with your feelings. That's the most important first step. And then one of the things I have read about how men heal differently is that Men often want to do something with their feelings. They want to move that energy in some way. And for me, filmmaking is a way that I talk about the things I have difficulty talking about. Mm -hmm. So that was was part of my process, was was going into the film and doing that. Uh, Other things that people do, one of the ones we talk about in the film is something called foreskin restoration, where a man will stretch the remaining skin that he has over time to get a covering in that part of the body. So you can't get the complex nerve endings back, but what you can do is stretch the remaining skin you have slowly over time. The same way you might put a gauge in your ear and expand your ear in that way and and get a covering again. And even though it doesn't get all the sensation back, it does cover that part of the body back and get some of the form and function of a foreskin. And a lot of men who've been through that process report that sex feels a lot better for them. And if they've had emotional issues or trauma around this, that they feel like in some way they've taken control of their body back, that now they have, you know, someone took this part of the body and they found a way to at least get some of it back. So they're not powerless in their body anymore. Because I think one of the huge challenges men have around this issue is a feeling of powerlessness. So on other issues, you can change your feelings, you can change and heal other things in your body or in your lifestyle, but this isn't one that we have a 100% physical solution for. Mm-hmm. So if there's something you can do that makes the situation better, then for a lot of men, that's actually emotionally healing, as well as, you know, they report having much stronger orgasms and better sex, and it feels good. So that's something that men can do. And I think that 
if you are interested in pursuing any kind of emotional healing, uh, one of the things that I, I've heard said also is that it's good to create a container of some kind. So when you are uh, doing any kind of healing work, I think men have a fear that if they go into the feeling, they're never going to get out of it. Like if I feel this, if I unlock this, I'm just going to feel bad all the time. And in reality, when you're present with your feelings, over time, it becomes easier. I liken the healing process to being a bit like weightlifting. When you first go into the gym, you might not be able to deadlift 400 pounds. And likewise, you might not be able to lift 400 pounds of grief. Mm. So what you do is you start with the barbell, and then you add five pounds, and then you add 10 pounds, and then you add 15 pounds. And over time, that 400 pounds of grief will begin to feel lighter. Mm-hmm. And eventually you'll be able to clear it and, and get it out of your life. But that may be a process that you slowly chip away at. And so if a grief like losing a body part or feeling uh-huh. abandonment when you were first born and defenseless and vulnerable might not be something you solve in one healing session. It might <laughs> yeah, be like right. you said, in your process, it was a two-month process. And, and for a lot of men who deal with the issue of circumcision, it's a multi-year process, but it gets better each time. The same way that if you're in the gym and you can now lift a hundred pounds, whereas before you could just do the barbell, you feel stronger, you feel better, you feel happier. And, and likewise, if you can clear a hundred pounds of grief, whereas before you couldn't deal with any of it, you're going to feel a little lighter and a little better. And over time, you might be able to clear all of it, but the more you do, the better it gets. Yeah, it's amazing. Like you start to feel seen, you start to feel acknowledged, you start yeah. to feel validated, which is always begins so much with us. It's so nice to have someone else validated. I hope this podcast affirms that for people yeah. listening, that you are validated. Brendan, the work you're doing is, I mean, when I first discovered your movie, it was so like, finally someone had a platform who was shouting from the rooftops. I'm so grateful. It's on Netflix. I just like, for me, it's all about how do we create more connective relationships? How do we communicate better? How do we, but we have to know where we come from and what might impact us. And collectively as a, as a, as a people, we need to fight for each other to experience love and safety and security. And it's never too late to begin, never too late to shift. And I think we can look at history pretty um, accurately to say that we've made a lot of decisions that weren't the best decisions based on what we know now. And I really hope that through your work, which I, I have no doubt is true, I really hope that people can compassionately and non-judgmentally look at themselves and say, well, we can do better and that's okay. So I'm really grateful. So thank you for pursuing that and having that come to Jesus conversation with yourself about, can, am I okay to put this into the world and face what might be the repercussions? And I hope that you have faced far more love and support than, than the opposite, it sounds like. Yeah, it it is it has been a good journey and uh, I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, so where so where can people find the film other than Netflix? Where can people find you uh all that kind of stuff? So you can get the film on circumcisionmovie.com. Uh it's on Amazon and iTunes and Vimeo and actually if you go to the website, we've got like 20 hours of bonus features you could also get. What? Oh shit, I'm hitting up yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, it's there's a whole bunch there. Uh and 
Yeah, well, so one of the things things I did is I put extended interviews for with all of our interview subjects there because I want people to see this is you know in a documentary, uh, people will wonder like, oh, well, what else did that person say? So if you want to just watch the guy who talks about the history for two hours, you've got him talking about the history in an extended wow. form, whatever you want to go deep on. Um, and then you can find me at brennamarada.com. I am at bdmarada on all social media. And I am, am I ready to talk? I think I can talk about this now. I'm trying to do at least one book this year on the subject. So there'll be more things to come. All right. Well, we'll make sure when you get it out, you just let me know because I will freaking. We'll do. Appreciate it. Everywhere. So thanks again for your time. So grateful for everyone listening. Please go check this out. And thank you for being willing to learn. And so much appreciative uh, for you, Brennan. Appreciate it. Thank you. Wow. If that episode wasn't jam-packed with amazingness, oh man, I don't know what is. If you guys could do me the greatest favor and share it and give me a five-star rating on wherever you listen to this and also leave a written review, I'm so grateful for all your support. And thank you. I hope you have the most wonderful week. And I can't wait for you to tune in next week because we got another rocker coming. Love all of you.